If you have your Bibles, let me uh, invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. The verses will be up on the screen in in just a a moment. Uh, Enemies uh, in our lives really are very useful for us because they give us easy targets, don't they? Do you have anybody in your life that really is an enemy? I mean, somebody that really, you just, you don't get along with them at all. Uh, They don't like you, you don't like them. Uh, Webster defines an enemy in the following. A person who bears another ill will and actively works against him. Do you have anybody in your life like that that bears you ill will and works against you? Might be somebody in your own home. Might be somebody in your office. Might be a neighbor. It may not be anybody presently in your life, but there may have been someone in your past that was an enemy. But I bet you when we start to talk about enemies, uh, each person in this room more than likely can get a a face uh, in their mind. That person that was your enemy at one time or another. Uh, I had a, a friend come to me I guess it was probably a month or so ago, and say, I need to talk to you. I've got an issue. I'm trying to think through and figure out. And so we got together and uh, had some lunch, and we were talking, and I said, you know, I have this enemy in my life. I have a person that I really believe has has wronged me, and I don't know what to do with this. Uh, And I really am am angry about it, and and I just kind of laid out the circumstances, and I could could sense the kind of angst in his voice a little bit. And he said, now, got through telling a story and talking about the circumstances, and said, now, what do I do? And I said, well, that's easy, you know. As a pastor, I've read the Bible, and I can tell you, you pray for your enemies. That's what Jesus said you should do. Jesus said that we're to pray for enemies, and you're going to see that verse up on the screen in just a moment. That's, that's story or illustration number one. Story or illustration number two uh, happened in my life in the mid-1980s when I was in youth ministry. I was working with a group of guys to do a conference for high school students down in Jekyll Island, Georgia. And uh, it was a new conference that had never been done before, and, and so we started it, and it went well for the first year or two. Uh, and about the third year, uh, we all had our assignments throughout the year that we were supposed to be getting things ready as we built up towards a conference. And I was calling the director of the conference, trying to get information so that I could do my part to get everything ready, and I wasn't getting any return phone calls. And so, uh, you know, I started calling in September and October, nothing. Uh, November, December, hey, I'd leave phone messages. Come on, man, I need to know this. I need to know this. Uh, we've got to figure all this out. We've got to get going. Call me back. Dozens, literally dozens of phone calls without one message in return. It finally got to be April, May of that year. The conference was in June still. Uh, literally, probably by that time, I had left, I don't know, 40, 50 phone messages over the, over the months. Not one call return. So it got to be late May, and in and, and our immediate youth ministry, we had to figure out what we were going to do for the summer. I said, you know, I guess we're not having the conference. I, I don't know what else to do. We better pick another alternative. We, we need to have something for our students. And so we planned and, and signed up and went to another conference. Well, about the time that we went to that other conference, we got a phone call, and I wasn't at home. Cindy was the one that actually answered the phone, and it was the leader uh, that did not return any of my phone calls, literally screaming at my wife. She was he's screaming at my wife about how I had betrayed him, how I had not followed through with my responsibility, how I had not uh, done what I was supposed to do, and how could I possibly let everybody down? When you ask me about an enemy, I don't have any trouble getting a face, a picture in my mind. The difference between those two stories is simply this. On the one hand, I was a casual observer who has read the scripture enough to be dangerous. (laughs) And so I could say to my friend, oh, that's easy. You just need to pray for your enemy. The other circumstance was actually in my own life, and I had to decide whether or not I was going to be a disciple of Jesus. It wasn't telling somebody else how to live. It was, it was me being forced 
to look at the truth of the gospel and say, Tom, the rubber meets the road here in your life. What are you going to do? How are you going to respond? It's one thing to tell someone else how they're going to live. It's quite a different thing to decide that you are going to be a disciple of Jesus no matter what the cost to your own heart, to your own soul. Probably most of us in our lives will never face what what I call a a life-threatening enemy. You know, you think of uh, the last century, and you think of somebody like Corey Ten Boom or or Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Christians who were were put in concentration camps in Nazi Germany. Dietrich Bonhoeffer died in in prison uh, before the Allies were able to uh, uh, relieve that particular uh, concentration camp. Uh, And those people both wrote about the the struggle uh, of loving their enemy. Or you think about Alexander Solzhenitsyn in the Gulag, uh, and his experience, and, and being uh, tortured and mistreated, uh, and being called to love his enemy. Probably most of us will never have enemies uh, along those lines. But we all have uh, an image in our mind. We all have someone who has wronged us. Someone who, who sets themselves up really as an e- easy target for us because we feel justified in vilifying them. They've wronged us, and after all, they started it. We're simply going to finish it. Kind of like the guy in the coffee shop, if you were here early enough to see that video. The person who decided he just needed to take matters in his own hands because his cup of coffee wasn't made correctly. Jesus speaks his truth into our life in a radically different message. And there's no way around this. We have to press through it to hear what the Lord has to say to us about our enemies. Well, you hear the word of God as it's found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 47. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we come to this text, it would be nice to say that we've we've already arrived. Uh, We love our enemies. We've got that one down and we can move on to the next but, Father, that, that probably isn't true. More than likely, it isn't true. Because it's much easier to hate our enemies. It's much easier to justify ourselves by pointing out how rotten our enemies really are. It's much easier, Father, to attack them in the name of defending ourselves than it is to listen to these verses and take them to heart. If we were honest, Father, we would have to admit that uh, more than likely it's malice in our hearts. It's not love. So, Father, I pray this morning for a group of people gathered together who probably are better at hating enemies than loving enemies. And probably most of whom gathered in this room are saying, I'm a disciple of Jesus. Father, I pray that you would help the disconnect. (laughs) Those two things don't go together. I can't claim to be a disciple of Jesus and hate my enemies. But Father, you are a gracious God. You are a merciful God. You are a compassionate God. You don't condemn us. You correct us. 
You don't accuse us. You teach us. So Holy Spirit, we pray because of the Lord Jesus and his atoning death on the cross that you would come and teach us. My observations on this passage are irrelevant. It is only your eternal word that abides in our hearts. So I pray for every one of us in this room. Father, I also pray in particular before we start for any who are in this room who have been harmed and wronged by a Christian. Their enemy is a person who claims to be a disciple of Jesus. Father, I pray that you would deal with with our hearts very specifically, that we would see that your word is true, that there can be healing and restoration. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to give you uh, five thoughts on this passage. As we go through this sermon series through the book of Matthew, as as I said last week, it's not going to be so much uh, going through it verse by verse and and really uh, looking at it in depth, but rather it's going to be observations on discipleship. Because most of us in this room claim to be disciples of Jesus. And that's an easy thing to do on Sunday morning when we're in a nice warm room and we're all dressed up and everybody's smiling and being nice to each other. But what happens when we get into that place where we really do have an enemy? Maybe, our, like I said, our enemy is in our home or in our workplace or one of our children or our spouse or an ex-spouse. What do we do when we get in that relationship? What do we do in those circumstances as disciples of Jesus? This is not an easy teaching. I'll be the first to tell you that it's much easier for me to hate my enemies than it is for me to love my enemies. And yet I believe that in these words are life. And so I just want to throw out some observations to you this morning, uh, some of which I hope will stick uh, as, as we talk about what it means to consider this passage. The first thing we need to understand, just from a contextual point of view, is this, that Jesus is not introducing a new teaching here. He is simply correcting the misuse of the original. If you look at verses 43 and 44, if we can go back to the previous page, it says this, For you have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, it sounds like Jesus is saying, this is the way it used to be, but now something new and different is being introduced. But that's not what Jesus is saying. If you look at Leviticus chapter 19, you'll see this. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. God has always called his people to love those around them. And God identifies neighbors as people who may be someone against whom you have a grudge or someone against whom you maybe have a right from a human perspective to take vengeance. But God says, no, to the contrary, you're not to hate your enemy, as Jesus says you've heard this, but you're actually to love your enemy. Let me give you a couple of other Old Testament passages to just kind of keep in your mind as we go through this. In Exodus 23, it says this, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Then King Solomon says in Proverbs, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Solomon was the son of David, and no doubt David told Solomon when, uh, when, uh, before Solomon was ever born a story of his own life, when David had already received the promise to become the next king of Israel, And when the present king of Israel, Saul, was trying to murder David, David had the opportunity to protect himself. He was in a cave, and he found his arch enemy asleep in the cave, and David had a chance to take his sword out and run Saul through and to do away with all his problems 
and to become king of Israel. And yet David, when having his enemy right there at his disposal, said, I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. Jesus isn't introducing something new. He's correcting a misuse of the original. It had been added later on so that when, when the, the verse was read, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, that hate your enemy was an addition that was never intended for God's people. God's sons and daughters are always commanded to treat everyone with kindness, whether friend or foe. So that's the first observation. Jesus isn't introducing new. He's correcting the misuse of the original. The second thing is this. Our actions are almost always based on our emotions. Our actions are almost always based on our emotions. Look at verse 44 of chapter 5. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus calls us to an emotional change of heart. What's the natural, natural reaction to an enemy? It's probably to hate that enemy or at least to, to distrust that enemy, to, to not want to have anything to do with that enemy. Even if we're you know, basically nice people, we're still going to have negative feelings toward that individual, and more than likely, we're going to despise them. Jesus understands that there needs to be a change of a heart disposition. If love is the emotional disposition of my heart, then it stands to reason that prayer will be the action that follows. Jesus says, love your enemies in order that you may pray for them, in order that there might be a redemptive activity in your life toward your enemy. The flip side is equally true. If it's not love in my heart for enemy, what is it? It's hate. If there's hatred in my heart towards my enemy, there's going to be action towards that enemy that won't be loving, will it? You ever have an enemy about whom you gossip? You ever have an enemy about whom you say, hey, guess guess what happened? You're not going to believe what this guy did to me. You don't think I picked up the phone and called some of my friends and said, hey, what gives with this guy calling and screaming at my wife? After he didn't return my phone calls, you don't think Tom Ricks did that? I guarantee you I did that. Why? Because there was hatred in my heart towards that person. And the natural reaction from that emotion was to act in a way negatively against that person. And Jesus understands that there needs to be a heart change. A genuine belief always leads us to action. A genuine belief always leads us to action. James picked up on that. In James chapter 1, it says this, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving the things needed for the body, what good is that? Now that's obvious, isn't it? I mean, does does that really need an explanation? Who says to a person, today it's what, 17 degrees outside? You're walking in and you see a homeless person out in front, and they they have rags, they're dressed in rags, and they've got like, you know, plastic bags on their feet to try and keep them warm, and you're going to say, hey, be warm and walk right by them? And then come in and say, well, I'm a real great Christian. Of course, it's, it's obvious. In the same way, towards our enemies, a genuine belief is always going to be followed by action. If we believe that Jesus is truly our Lord and our Savior, then there's going to be a change in our disposition and our heart. I also want you to note here that Jesus is not narrowing our response just to prayer. Some read this and say, okay, that's the only thing you need to do for your enemies. See, Jesus says it right there. Love them and and pray for them. I don't think Jesus is giving us a list here. I don't think he's narrowing it down to just praying for our enemies. I think what Jesus is doing is he's setting a tone. He's saying, if you will love your enemies, if you will allow that change to take place in your heart, and you will begin to pray for that enemy, 
then what else follows will be natural. It might be that you go out of your way to, to do an act of kindness towards them. That will all spring from this, this emotion. But Jesus isn't narrowing to prayer. I believe he's setting a tone for our lives. The third observation is this. Love identifies us with our Father. Look at verse 45. So that you, he says, love your enemies, pray for those persecute, persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And he goes on to explain that the Father makes the sun rise on the just and the unjust, sends rain, uh, and so on and so forth. Love identifies us with our Father. Um, Maybe you've had this experience as a child or or maybe now as an adult. Somebody looks at one of your kids and say, oh, they look just like you. Or maybe when you were a child, somebody said, boy, you look just like your mom. Boy, you you look just like your dad. Boy, you you look exactly like your older brother. It's amazing how much you guys look alike. Uh, my mom tells me the older I get, the more I remind her of her father, my, my uh, maternal grandfather. Uh, and there's always that, that sense of uh, family. You kind of look like one another. And in this passage, Jesus says, love your enemies so that you will be sons of your father. Now, he's not saying that that's how you become a Christian. He's not saying that you're saved by your action of loving your enemy. He's not saying, you know, God looks down from heaven and he sees those people that are able to love their enemies and therefore he lets them into heaven. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that you are seen as being part of a heavenly family when your reaction to an enemy is radically different than this world. How does love identify with you you with your Father in heaven? Well, think about how God reacted to his enemies. Think about what God did for his enemies. The reaction that God had to those of us who were his enemies was not vengeance, was not retribution, was not the just punishment that we deserve. His reaction to his enemies was the cross of Christ. His reaction to his his mortal foes was to send his son to die for them. Go home this afternoon and read Romans chapter 5, the first 10 verses. Paul is talking to the Roman Christians about their salvation. And he says, you know something, while you were still a sinner, before you did anything that was of any worth, Christ died for you. Then he goes on and he makes an even stronger statement. He says, don't you understand that while you were God's enemies, Jesus died for you. You want to know when you're going to start looking like your father? (laughs) You want to know when somebody's going to say to you, boy, you sure look like your older brother, Jesus. It's when God captures your heart by grace in such a way that any enemy you ever engage with, when you get the vision of them in your mind, the first thing you see before you see that face is the cross of Jesus Christ. And you understand, or at least you begin to understand the outer edges of God's grace for you, his compassion and his mercy for you that leads you to a place of saying, I can be nothing but compassionate for those around me, even if they are an enemy. Does your enemy when they see you and your action towards them? Do they see God's likeness? Do they see God's grace? Is there something that stirs within your enemy's soul when they receive a kindness from you that causes pause, that gets their attention and says to them, there's something different about this one? If we allow God's love to work through us, they'll begin to identify and see our Father in us. Fourth observation is this, love protects us from wrong priorities. This kind of love, loving of enemies, praying for those who persecute us, protects us from wrong priorities. Look at verses 46 and 47. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? 
Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Why don't we love our enemies? If, if we were to sit down and just have that conversation and we were to kind of list our enemies, I tell you about, you know, mine, this guy that called and attacked my wife and hated me and all this, uh, we c- kind of compare notes. Why would we say that, that we don't love our enemies? I think you could probably boil it down to this. Well, you know, it really isn't in my best interest. <laughs> it doesn't avail me anything to love an enemy. In fact, if I love an enemy, I might be putting myself at greater risk. I might be in a vulnerable position, and why would I want to put myself there? It doesn't seem to avail me anything at all. It's not to my advantage. It's not in my best interest to love an enemy. So I'm just going to stick with loving my friends. But the question we have to ask there is, well, what measuring rod are we using? By whose standard are we deciding that it's not in our best interest? If I measure my good by the world's standards, then I ought to hate my enemy. I ought to actually try to go out of my way to get rid of my enemy so that I can be safe. But if the starting point of my life is the foundation of the cross of Jesus Christ and God's love for me is his enemy, then my starting point is protected by that love. And I begin to reach out in compassion and in grace and in mercy because the other person's reaction to me isn't the issue. The issue is is God's character being developed in my life to the point that I really am a disciple of Jesus and I'm not just talking about it. I was uh, sharing a little bit this last night with Cindy and she told me about a a young lady at Kirkwood High School and Cindy's been uh, at Kirkwood High School now for about four years. She talked about her first year there who there was a young uh, teenage girl there and Cindy works mostly with at-risk students. Every time this gal saw Cindy in the hallway or in the lunchroom or, or in the classroom or wherever, and they had any kind of interaction at all, maybe Cindy asked her if she was getting her homework done uh, or did she have a hall pass, Anytime they had any kind of engagement, this girl just, she just cussed at Cindy. She would just yell at her. She would just belittle her and just anger just seethed out of this little teenage girl. And, and, and Cindy said, uh, I was able to, by God's grace, just respond to her and, and kindness, and just, uh, I didn't hold against her, I didn't, you know, give it back to her, uh, for whatever reason, God allowed me uh, to, to show some compassion towards her. Love protects us from a wrong set of priorities. Cindy could have said, I'm going to get this kid kicked out of school, she doesn't deserve to be here, and you know what, she wouldn't have been that far from the truth, quite frankly, but those weren't God's priorities in that situation. And this kind of love, when it infiltrates our hearts, protects us. And then the last observation, the fifth one is this. Love brings us an assurance of salvation. Let's go back to verse 45 for just a second. And just the first half of that verse. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. How many times have you had this experience? Something happens in your life, you, uh, you blow it again, you mess up, and you say to yourself, how can I be a Christian and still get this wrong? You ever had that experience? How, you know, how can, I, how can I talk this way to that person? I, just, I, I can't believe I'm a disciple of Jesus all these years and I'm, and I'm still making the same mistakes. You know, have you ever had that thought? That's why I don't have, you know, those little fish they put on the bumper sticker? You know, it's called a nickthus. It's a sign of the Christian church. That's why I don't have one of those on my car because a lot of drivers around St. Louis would confess that Tom Ricks probably isn't a Christian. <laughs> you know, I don't want to put myself on the spot. And I, but, I, but I do something like that. I go, man. How is it possible? How can you be a disciple of Jesus and think that or say that or do that? Well, the opposite is also true. You ever have one of those, those moments of clarity, one of those breakthrough moments where the Holy Spirit actually controls your heart? And in a situation like this, you're actually able to, to love an enemy? And you stand back and you go, oh my goodness, <laughs> this is really true. This isn't stuff we just talk about on Sunday morning. 
this actually is beginning to filter into my life. I actually am a disciple of Jesus. Not because of anything great I've done, but because God is capturing my heart and he's transforming me into the image of, our, of his son. And at that moment, we become assured that when we, when we are in this, in this uh, loving of our enemies, praying for those who persecute us, and we're doing it what seems so unnatural before now almost becomes natural to us, we go, wow, <laughs> it reminds me that I am in Christ Jesus. I told you three stories. I told you two at the outset of the sermon, one in the middle. First story is about a buddy of mine who came to me for some advice. And I very pastorally said, well, you pray for your enemies because it's right there on this verse. And I knew I was going to be preaching on it. Uh, and an interesting thing happened. He came back to me a couple weeks later, and I said, well, how did, how's it going? He said, you're not going to believe it. I, I, I took your advice. I, I started, started praying. And uh, like me, he said, you know, I, I thought about my enemy, you know, 70, 80 times during the day. <laughs> so there was a lot of prayer. But he said, uh, man, my heart started changing. And he said, now, actually, the circumstances have all worked out. He said, but that really isn't the point. The point is that this, this stuff kind of works. <laughs> And my heart was changed. My heart is changing. I said, wow, what do you know? The Holy Spirit really is active and working in a person's life. I was sitting in my office about eight years after that phone call came to our house in the mid-80s. And uh, my assistant came in my office and said, so-and-so is on the phone. I said, so, you're kidding. You sure you got the name right? She said, yeah, I'm sure I got the name right. It was a guy who had... Uh, who called and screamed at my wife all those years ago. Picked up the phone and said, hello? <laughs> and I'm wondering where this was going to go. You know, kind of holding the phone out here. Is this going to be more of the same? And there was weeping on the other end of the line. He's saying, I just, I got to ask your forgiveness. And he told me what he was going through in his life in that particular moment uh, when, when all of this stuff transpired years ago. And he said, I just, I was so wrong. And I thought of immediately... Not how good it was that this guy called me and, uh, you know, was convicted by the Spirit to, to get everything right. I thought about how bad I was <laughs> and all the people I had talked to about him. I had to go back and make a whole bunch of phone calls. <laughs> how humiliating is that? But how life-giving is that? To learn that loving your enemy is really the only option there is for a disciple of Jesus told you about Cindy and the young lady. She stopped Cindy in the hall one day about halfway through the, uh, halfway through the, the uh, school year, and she said, let me ask you a question, Ms. Ricks. Why do you do what you do? Why do you have this job? And Cindy's simple response was, because I love kids. That's all she said. As far as I know, she, that's all the conversation. I don't, I don't know that they talked anymore. If they did, Cindy didn't share that part with me. But basically it was that, and she moved on. Never had a problem with that kid the whole rest of the year. Why? Because when you love your enemies, you're living in the power of Christ. The Holy Spirit is transforming your heart. And enemies notice that kind of stuff. And they see that there's a difference. Do you really want to be a disciple of Jesus? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. You will be sons of your Father in heaven. Will you pray with me?